Hello, thank you for joining me on Humanities Radio. I'm Jana Cunningham with the University of Utah College of Humanities, and today, in honor of National Hispanic Latino Heritage Month, we're discussing the history of Mexican women with historian Susie Porter. Professor Porter is the director of the Center for Latin American Studies and the author of From Angel to Office Worker, Middle Class Identity of Female Consciousness in Mexico, 1890 to 1950. Your book examines the changing role of middle-class women in the early 20th century and their impact on the women's labor movement. How and why did the role of middle-class women change at that time? Thank you for having me on the podcast. Uh, Those are great questions. We can talk about two types of change, changes in women's labor and changes in people's conceptions of middle-class identity. So the context is that due to shifts in the Mexican economy in the late 19th century, middle-class households found themselves in increasingly difficult circumstances. The federal government had favored large-scale agricultural and industrial production to the detriment of both working-class and middle-class families. By the late 19th century, there was a decline in those occupations historically available to the middle class, and there was a decline in the value of the wages that they earned. It became harder to pay for housing, for education, for clothing, which was important at that time for marking one's status, and even uh, to pay for food. These economic changes then meant that the relative value of women's labor and the household changed. Historically, to identify as middle class meant that women remained in the home. They worked at home, um, but, but not outside of the home. The respectability of both women as individuals and that of her household required her to remain at home, engaged in the labor of raising family, preparing food, making clothing, and all of that work. However, it became more profitable for middle-class households for women to work outside of the home and to earn a wage. So this was a major shift in how the middle-class identified to have uh, women working outside of the home. And I'll just note that these processes are similar to something that played out in the United States uh, between roughly the 1970s and now. Since the 1970s, workers, including middle-class workers, have seen a decline in real wages. That is what their wages can buy. This decline in earning capacity led middle-class families to make the decision to have women work outside of the home, not only when they were young and single, but once they were married and even with children at home. Now, this shift is something that happened among white Americans, uh, African Americans uh, in particular, and to a certain extent, uh, Latinos have a much longer history of uh, sending women outside of the the house to work in order to maintain their standard of living. But as I said then, as a result of these shifts in the 1970s in the United States, there was an explosion in the workforce participation of married women with young children still at home. And so what type of work was available to the middle-class women as opposed to working class? Well, in the late 19th, early 20th century, not many. And and one of the things that shaped this was people's ideas about 
who worked outside of the home or not, who worked in the public sphere or not. And the, the racial formations of the era associated working in public with indigenous peoples and with uh, working class peoples. And so those who sought to maintain middle class status did everything they could to keep women from working outside of the home. They would even, for example, uh, work inside the home making candies, making prepared food, for example, and then hiring someone to go out in, into the streets to sell those items. Women also worked uh, as seamstresses, so they sewed the, cloth the clothing for their own family sometimes, but sewing allowed them to remain at home and maintain that middle class respectability. But there were so many women who sought this option that it was really poorly paid. Probably one of the, the watershed moments in terms of middle class women's employment was in the field of teaching. So Mexico has a long history of women teaching within convents, but teaching as a secular occupation really only open to women in the late 1880s. My book looks at women's entrance into office work. So with the expansion of business and the economy, the expansion of the government to support business with things like the post office, the labor department, federal banking, uh, offices, for example, the the bureaucracy, uh, both in the private and the public sector, exploded, and the, those entities turned to women to fill uh, fill the offices with secretaries, typists, filers, all these kinds of occupations. And as women moved into the workforce, specifically into these offices in the public and private sector, what kind of inequalities and issues did they face? that they maybe weren't prepared for? <laughs> well, so there are several moments in the trajectory of women entering into the workforce or anyone entering into the workforce where inequality begins. So inequality can begin even before one's hired. First, in uh, regard to access to education, those fortunate enough to come from families that supported women's work outside of the home would have needed to have not only the money to pay for school because uh, the secretarial schools were not free, um, but they also had to, those families had to be able to afford having those women not work and contributing to the household economy. It's the same kind of challenge that a lot of our students at the University of Utah face today. Um, how do you balance the, 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 the cost of education to even get your foot in the door um, to be able to then um, find find uh, lucrative and fulfilling work. The other kind of uh, inequality that women faced before getting to work was social prejudice. In the late 19th, early 20th century, most people thought that women shouldn't work outside of the home. Um, maybe they would work if they were daughters contributing to the household, but once they were married, people didn't think that mothers should work outside of the home. Inequality also uh, happens at the moment of uh, establishing networks to get jobs. Who do you know? How can you um, how can you leverage those networks to get a position? So the the inequality began even before women got to work. And then when they got to work, they were hired into low level positions, positions that were sometimes not clearly defined, um, positions where the path to promotion was unclear positions where uh, their seniority, how the seniority was calculated was not clear. So there were there were all sorts of different 
factors that that shaped women's inequality at work. And government jobs were interesting because each category had a set wage. So if you were a, a typist, you were a typist. If you were an office apprentice, you were an office apprentice. Regardless of, 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 of being male or female, you earned the same wage. So inequalities developed despite the fact that women were paid the same wages in offices. And it was due to these, these barriers to their promotion. Um, and all of these inequalities made women vulnerable to sexual harassment. So that would be another important uh, inequality in the workplace. I'd add that while this book examines Mexican history, there's really no need to look beyond the state of Utah to understand the urgency to make such issues visible. In Utah, women earn around 70 cents for every dollar a man earns. And despite the lip service, uh, to the contrary, we in Utah continue to value workplace productivity over raising children and really offer very meager support for working parents. Right. Even as you were kind of talking about these inequalities that um, these women in Mexico were facing, I was thinking, you know, you could very easily be talking about the inequalities that are happening today. Absolutely. How did these women in Mexico organize to enact change, and what were their demands? Organizing begins from conversation, from talking with each other, comparing experiences, and drawing on their work experiences. These women wrote beautiful literature and biting feminist critiques that were published in the newspapers. They attended boring organiza organizational meetings and thrilling street protests. And they proclaimed the dignity of working mothers by defending their rights as workers and by getting their employers to provide childcare. I'll uh, note that they had to overcome the stigma associated with organizing in general and unions in particular, but once they did, once they came to understand their shared condition, they formed one of the most powerful unions in, in, in Mexico, the, the Public Employees Union. They were at the heart of the public employee labor movement. So in some sense, if it were not for women, for feminism and the women's movement, the 1930s union movement would have not flourished the way that it did. What were their demands? Equal pay for equal work, an end to the glass ceiling, respect for seniority, transparency in promotions, and uh, access to childcare. They also, demanded a shift in conversation. So in the 1920s, there were all sorts of debates about whether or not women should cut their hair short and whether or not they should wear flopper style dresses with shorter hemlines. And women said, no, it's not our clothes. It's not about the haircuts. It's about equal rights. And at this moment, women in Mexico did not have the vote. They said, it's not about what makeup we wear. It's about getting the right to vote. So in your book, you argue that inequality in the workplace reinforces larger societal inequality. Can you just talk about that um, a little bit more in depth? Yeah, so this, this generation of women who in the 1920s entered into office work in huge numbers um, and then began organizing um, really critiqued women's social subordination to men, the privileging of the needs of, of male ego. Um, and most of us spend all day at work and the conditions of that work inform how we relate to each other. 
Gender inequities in pay, promotion, voice, and power set the conditions for social inequalities. So the structure and organization of the workforce laid the basis for women's subordination to men, both at work and at home. So the way work was organized um, reinforced gender hierarchies. Women reported to men. Uh, they, when they took the dictation, they wrote down the words that men spoke, and then they went and typed up those words and made them look pretty and organized. Um, in the workplace, men in the 1920s were uh, addressed by a title that indicated their level of education. So licenciado means that you have a BA. Um, you might be doctor for, as a doctor. Women were called senorita. You might be 45 years old, a full-grown adult, married and addressed in the workplace as senorita. And this, to some degree, persists today in, in Mexico. Um, and that title of senorita means it identifies you first as a woman, a woman who's dependent upon male authority, because that's what that word historically means. And to some degree, it marks you as sexually available. Um, so, so that kind of workplace relationship, if that's how you relate with each other all day long, it's going to carry over into uh, the larger society. So, for example, when women left the office to socialize, they had less money in their pockets than men. So men would pay for lunch or drinks or whatever it is. And what does that imply? What kind of inequality does that set up when men are the ones with money to pay for socializing and women aren't? How does that under shape our understanding of a woman's worth? A lot of these young women were uh, working so that their brothers could stay in school. So that sets up an inequality. And then the money that they contributed to the household was less than that of, of men. So their value within the household economy was, was unequal. Um, all of these things set up the, I, I've tried to think about the way that this book and this research speaks to our contemporary times. And one of the ways is that what we call mansplaining today is reinforced by spending all day long in workplaces where men are the authority and women's job is to listen to men, to report to men, to follow their orders, to be subordinate to them. Um, another example is the way childcare responsibilities really limit women's workplace successes. We face a continued lack on the part of society as a whole to care for children. It's one of the things that we've learned with the pandemic is that women enter the workforce from radically different circumstances than men. Women come with a greater responsibility for childcare. And when the pandemic hit, women lost jobs and have remained out of the workforce because someone has to raise children. And I would argue that women in 1930s Mexico City made that kind of issue more visible than we have here today in Utah. How how did the contributions of the women in the in Mexico in the 1930s shape the workforce and society today? How is it different now because of what they demanded and what they contributed? They started conversations about the rights of working mother mothers and uh, the need for childcare for working mothers. 
they uh, started conversations about the importance of transparency, objective criteria for promotion, uh, laws against sexual harassment started back in 1920s Mexico. And they started conversations again about gender inequality and sexual exploitation, both within and outside of the workplace. And I just wanted to say, you know, we started this podcast with a reference to National Hispanic Latino Heritage Month. And I would say that we could ask of our current times some of the questions that I've asked in, in this book, which is to say, what are the inequalities that Latinx people face uh, in our society today and in the workforce in particular? And some of the most recent studies have found that Latinas are typically paid 55 cents for every dollar paid to white non-Hispanic men nationally. The median annual pay for Latinas in the United States who have a full-time job is around $36,000, while the median annual pay for white non-Hispanic men is around 65,000, which is a difference of $29,000 a year. So if we eliminated that wage gap, the typical Latina woman working in the U.S. would have enough money to pay approximately for three additional years of tuition and fees for a four-year public university or the full cost of tuition and fees for a two-year college. So that's, that's and it's important to, to remember the way that those inequalities exist across national boundaries and how they persist today and continue to be issues that we need not only to talk about to, but to organize around. And in the face of just a, a, you know, overwhelming number of negative stereotypes that circulate in the media about Mexicans and Mexican Americans, I really hope that this book provides profiles in courage and persistence and creativity set in the context of workaday lives. And I'll just note that next spring semester, I'll be teaching a course on Latin American women's history. And if anyone's in, interested, they should look for it uh, in the Latin American studies class list or in the Department of History. Oh, that sounds wonderful. And where can people purchase your book, Professor Porter? It's published with the University of Nebraska Press. And so if you just do a web search, University of Nebraska Press and the title, they can, they can find it there. That was Susie Porter, Professor of History and Gender Studies and Director of the Center for Latin American Studies. For more information about the University of Utah College of Humanities, please visit humanities.utah.edu.